is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 101. I'm not a gardener, as I've mentioned before. When I did have a garden, I thought I was growing great potatoes and they were just weeds, so uh, I'm not a gardener. But I've looked up some things on cultivating this week, and cultivating is really doing two things. It is removing weeds from your garden that compete with what you're trying to grow, and it's loosening the soil so as to optimize the retention and penetration of air, water, nutrients. So cultivating does two things. It removes the bad things, and it just helps the good things grow. That's what cultivating does. I'm talking about cultivation this morning as we begin because I really believe that Psalm 101 is David's commitment to what he wants to cultivate in his life so that he can be the best king that, uh, that he can, can be. Now this psalm, Psalm 101, is known as one of the royal psalms. It was probably sung in the courts of King David. And most everyone believes that this was a psalm that David wrote prior to his ascension to king following Saul's death. And uh, so in Europe, and this was known as the prince's psalm. And, uh, and so what they used this psalm for quite a bit was to, to instruct Christian magistrates and princes and kings, even anybody in political leadership, what kind of political leader, what kind of leader you should be. James uh, Montgomery Boyce says that Martin Luther did an 80-page exposition of this psalm because he was really concerned with civil government. And, and he did that because he wanted to present it to every civil leader and say, this is the kind of magistrate you should be. This is the kind of king you should be. This is the kind of leader you should be in civil government. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, as I thought about that this week, I would say to you all that as we vote politically in our country, we should judge the men and women that we're voting for against what this psalm says, what David said he would be. This is the kind of thing that we should put as a template over the people that are running and say, is this the kind of person that David is talking about here uh, in, uh, in this psalm? So we could talk about it on that level, but I'm not really going to because I, I think think that this is not just on David's part a challenge to cultivate something as a political leader or as a king, but this is what David wanted to cultivate in his personal life. Uh, I, I believe these are the things he's saying, I want to cultivate this so that I can be this kind of person, not just because he wanted to be a great king, but because he wanted to be this kind of, of man or this kind of person. So let's read the psalm together, Psalm 101. It's in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible, uh, but you're welcome to read, of course, read wrong in your Bible would be even better, but it's in your bulletin if you need it. Well, let's read. This is a psalm of David. I will sing of faithful love and justice. I will sing praise to you, Lord. I will pay attention to the way of integrity. When will you come to me? I will live with integrity of heart in my house. I will not set anything godless before my eyes. I hate the doing of transgression. It will not cling to me. A devious heart will be far from me. I will not be involved with evil. 
I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. I cannot tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. My eyes favor the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me. The one who follows the way of integrity may serve me. No one who acts deceitfully will live in my palace, and no one who tells lies will remain in my presence. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, eliminating all evildoers from the Lord's from the Lord's city. So let's notice, let's notice the cultivating practices that David enumerates here. They sort of all run together, but I think we can break them out. And, and I found seven of them. And I'm gonna challenge you personally with them. Again, I think these are broader than just, I think David had these in mind for his administration as king. This is what his kingdom was going to be, be like. But we're going to take them and we're gonna apply them personally to our lives. And as I said, I've got seven of these things that I believe that God would want you and me to cultivate in our life if we're going to be a godly man or if we're gonna be a godly woman. These are the things that we should work on cultivating in our life. Remember, cultivation is removing the bad and, and bringing in the good. So here's the first one. Cultivate your personal responsibility. And you're not going to find that listed as David saying, you know, I'm, I'm cultivating my own personal responsibility. But I want you to, if you, if you pull out your bulletin just for a second, if you have it, or your Bible's fine, look at the psalm itself and count how many times David says, I will, I hate, my eyes, phrases like that. Look at, count for just a second. Just look through the psalm. And if you got the bulletin, I kind of highlighted them for you so they'd stick out in bold, right? You see them? I will, I cannot, I hate, my eyes. It's like 11 of them in eight verses. Eight times he's saying, I am going to do this. And what David is saying is, I'm going to take personal responsibility for my life. I'm going to personally be accountable. I'm going to be responsible to the things that God desires me to do. I'm going to do it. And so what I want to say to all of us today, if you're going to be a godly man or a godly woman, you need to take personal responsibility to cultivate your godliness. Now, I don't mean that you're cultivating your godliness with your own power. The Bible says it's the power of God dwelling within us, and it's the Spirit of God dwelling within us that He's the one that's working in our life. He's the one that's, that's changing us. But, but there is a sense in which you are responsible to cultivate the power of God in your life to be this godly man or this godly woman. So let me, let me use my, my cultivating the garden metaphor to kind of illustrate this. If you have a garden, you most likely use a tiller in this day. But there, maybe you don't have a tiller and you have a small garden and you'll use a hoe, okay? So you're using an instrument of power to cultivate your garden, but it's still you applying yourself or applying that power to your life to cultivate that garden. And I think, it's, I think this is what the Lord is telling us through David's words here. He's saying, I am going to take personal responsibility for my life to be a godly man or to be a godly king. So I want to say to all of you young people, listen to me really, really careful. It's not your parents' job for you to, to make you a godly 
person's, it's, it's ultimately going to be your responsibility. And even as I'm saying that, I'm getting a check in my spirit, because yes, parents, you do have a responsibility in helping your children become godly. But young people, especially those of you becoming of age, you are responsible for your own godliness, and you cannot ride on the coattails of your parents. You've got to step up and you've got to own it yourself. You've got to say, I'm going to be that godly man or I'm going to be that godly woman. And you older people, listen, you know, I, I, I talked to the young people just then, but it's, it's just as true for you. It's just as true for you. You can't, listen, men, you can't ride on the spiritual coattails of your wives. If you have a godly wife who's pursuing after the Lord, I mean, that's good. I'm glad you've got her. But you know what? You need to be a godly man who pursues after the Lord apart from your wife. And I can say that in, in, the, in the reverse as well. Ladies, if you've got a godly man who's following after God, I mean, that's great. But you've got to follow after God on your own. You've got to take personal responsibility for that. And I think this is how we cultivate godliness in our life. And it's never going to happen until I recognize this, that I am responsible I'm called by God, I'm, I'm enabled by God to be responsible to pursue godliness. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to fail and trip and stumble along the way. It doesn't, I'm not at all saying that you've got some kind of innate ability within yourself. I, I think the Spirit of God is the tiller and He's the hoe, if you would. But, but just like you have to work those in a real earthly garden, you, you have to work his spirit, you gotta allow his spirit or, or work in cooperation with his spirit to be that godly man or woman. Number two, cultivate a heart of praise to God. David says, I will sing of faithful love and justice. I will sing praise to you, Lord. At first I thought David was talking about how he just loved faithful love. That, that's translated in most translations, mercy. Why the CSB changed that to faithful love, I'm sure it fits. But I think mercy fits just as good, and it's the more common use of that word. So why, you know, I, at first I thought David was saying, you know, I just value mercy and I value justice so much that I'm going to sing about those. Those are going to be priorities in my life. Those are going to be priorities in, in my kingdom. And indeed, they should be. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's not talking about justice and mercy as as is separate individual things. I think he's talking about those things flowing from the heart of God. In other words, I'm going to sing of mercy and justice because they come from God and I'm going to sing praise to God. I, I, don't, I think he's saying this is how God is. He is a merciful God and he's a just God. And so therefore, I'm going to sing praise to him. I'm going to cultivate praise in my life for God because of who he is and what he's like. You know, we've been praying for the Afghan believers and uh, we, we've watched the Taliban take over Afghanistan and we've all been afraid, not just for our brothers and sisters, but for the Afghan, so many Afghan people in general who are not necessarily believers. And one of the reasons that we're so afraid for them is because the Taliban is neither merciful nor just. They're not merciful and they're not just. They're cruel and they're corrupt. And so we fear for all of those people, not just our brothers and sisters. David is saying, I'm cultivating this heart of praise because God is merciful and God is just. And you know, last week we talked about Psalm 100. 
And by the way, I mean, this is, I don't know if it's self-serving or whatever, but if you didn't listen to Psalm 100 in the talk last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to it. I really would. And not just because of things people said, but just because of how I felt in my own heart about that psalm. But that psalm says, when we come through those doors, we should come through those doors with a desire to praise God, to worship God, to shout to God. And we should come acknowledging who God is. And what do we acknowledge about God? That he is merciful and just. And which one of us in this room doesn't need the mercy of God? Because we've fallen short at some level. British pastor W.E. Sanger, you may have seen that name. I had seen it. I didn't know much about him, but he was a popular pastor um, back in the last century. He was born in the early part of, 19, of the 1900s. He was born in the early 1900s. And, uh, and he became this, this really gifted uh, pastor speaker. And he had the largest Sunday night attendance in London with over 2,500 people coming on Sunday nights to hear him speak. But in the mid-1950s, he got muscular dystrophy or one of those things that began to atrophy his muscles. And it was progressive, and so he got worse and worse. And towards the end, when he couldn't, he could just tell he wasn't able to do a lot, he began to, he put himself into writing and praying. Eventually, his voice would fail, his legs would fail, and uh, he was really near the end of his life. And on an Easter Sunday morning, he, uh, just weeks before he would die, he took out a pen and he shakily wrote down a letter to his daughter. And this is what he said. It is a terrible thing to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. So let me just ask you a question. As we're talking about cultivating godliness in our life, what do you do with your voice? Seriously, what do you do with your voice? Do you shout to God? Uh, I mean, do you sing to the Lord? Do you just, do you, do you tell, do you acknowledge with your voice who God is in your life personally? If not, cultivate praise in your life. Begin today to say, I'm going to cultivate praise in my life every day. Number three, cultivate intentionality to be blameless. Verse two, I will pay attention to the way of integrity. When will you come to me? I, I, I want to give you the ESV translation. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? You know, you'd think we'd want to put, you'd think that David would want to put, or we'd want to put today in talking about cultivating godliness, the emphasis on being blameless, but, but I'm not doing that because I don't think that's what David does. Notice that he, he says, I want to pay attention to the way of integrity. I, I want to ponder the way that is blameless. And, and here's what I think he's saying. If I'm going to be blameless, it's not going to happen on accident. I've got to be intentional about it. I've got to be deliberate and strive for blamelessness. So I'm going, to, I'm going to keep it out in front of me and I'm going to intentionally seek to be holy. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to ponder. David envisions cultivating a life of premeditated consideration of the path by which he should walk. In other words, he's going to think about how do I walk in holiness? Solomon says something similar. Solomon, his son later, would say, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Ponder, think about it. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for, the wi for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Here, here's what I think he's saying. Jesus was telling us that the right path is skinny, and you've got to think about it. 
And you, and you gotta you gotta get on it on purpose. But if you just take the easy path, the path where you don't have to think about it, it's gonna be the broad path to destruction. And so if we're going to cultivate godliness, what I'm asking you and me to do today is to think about that. God, what is the path of godliness? What is the path of righteousness? What is the blameless path? So when you've got decisions in front of you, ask yourself, God, which is the way you want me to go? And then ask the Lord to strengthen you. Number four, cultivate integrity in the inner man. He goes on and he says, I will live with integrity of my heart in my house. Also translated, I will walk in my house with blameless heart. Now you might say, well, Jimmy, you're parsing this out too much, and maybe I am, but he speaks of integrity in the heart. I mean, integrity of the heart in the home. And he seems to be culling that out from pondering the way of blamelessness. And so I'm going to suggest that what David is saying is I'm not just going to ponder how to be blameless out here where all of you see me. I'm going to be blameless in my heart. I'm going to be blameless in my home. I'm going to be blameless where people don't see me. In other words, I'm going to try to walk faithfully where none of you can see, in the hidden parts. I'm going to cultivate uprightness behind closed doors when no one is looking. I'm going to be a person of integrity and holiness and blamelessness in my home and in my heart. So let me ask you to do me a favor right now and just take a second and look inside and ask yourself this. Am I a person of integrity in my heart? Am, am I a person of integrity where nobody, when no one's looking, where no one's checking and where no one sees? Am I a person of integrity? What are you doing in the basement of your home hidden from everyone's eyes? Robert Munger was a Presbyterian pastor, and some of you are going to be familiar as I continue with this illustration, but he was a Presbyterian pastor, again, sort of like a Sanger, born uh, early part of the 1900s. In 1951, he wrote uh, this little treatise called My Heart, Christ Home. I've quoted parts of it to you before. But in this little metaphor that he writes, he, he, he's talking about inviting Jesus into the home of your heart, right? And he, he talks metaphorically like your heart has all these rooms, like it has a library and it has a kitchen and, and I can't remember all the different rooms. But, but he, he talks about the hall closet in this metaphor. And I want to read this to you. And this is, this is Robert Munger writing this metaphor of Jesus being invited into the home of your heart. And this, this little section is called the hall closet. There is just one matter that I, I might share with you. He's talking to all of us, this person is. One day I found him, that is Jesus, waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there is a peculiar odor in this house. There is something dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square. And in that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. And certainly I didn't want Jesus to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. And yet I loved them and I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I went up with him. As we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door. It's in there, something dead. 
I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom. And now he was asking about a little two by four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give it to, I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts as if, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this odor, you are mistaken. I will take my bed out on the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that. When I saw him start to head down the stairs, and then I saw him start to head down the stairs, and when you've come to know the love of Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said, I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of the closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand. He walked over to the door and opened it and entered in, took out the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, and he threw it away. And then he cleaned the closet and painted it and fixed it up, doing it all in a moment's time. And oh, what victory and release to have the dead thing out of my life. David sought to cultivate godliness by basically saying, the hall closets are the Lord's. Number five, cultivate the elimination of temptation. Verse three, I will not set any, anything godless before my eyes. I hate the doing of transgression. It will not cling to me. A devious heart will be far from me. I will not be involved with evil. David is committed to removing temptation from in front of him. He sees his eyes as a gateway to his heart. And he says, I'm not going to put anything in front of my eyes that's going to, to tempt me. Now, you know, as I think about this, the, the first thing that comes to mind would be pornography in our generation, in our day, keeping that in front of our eyes. But you know what? I, and I think there's so much more than that that we put in front of our eyes. So many things that, TV in general, social media in general. He says, I'm not going to let doing evil cling to me. That speaks of removing temptation that is clinging. Whatever tempts you, you need to remove it. He says, I won't be involved in evil. Whatever is tempting you towards evil needs to be removed. We need to remove the things that tempt us instead of allowing them to stay there in front of us. So I have some suggestions for removing temptation. I don't know how helpful they are. You're probably disappointed. But I wrote down three things for you. Here's the first one. Pray like Jesus taught us. Pray like he taught us. Remember what he taught us? Do not lead us into temptation. So you know what? I tell you what, if you're tempted and you know this is a big temptation in your life, you pray about it. You pray often. You pray all the time. You say, God, remove it from me. God, help me. God, you know, you just pray. Number two, remove it. Cut it off. Cut it out. If you find your phone is too hard to control, get rid of it. If your computer's too hard to control, get rid of it. If a friendship is too hard to control, get rid of it. If money is too hard to control, lessen it. Can't get rid of it altogether. Alcohol, food, whatever it is, remove it. Remove it. Be careful, though, because it has a way of finding its way back even after you've removed it. 
Micah came by my office this week and we were talking. I asked him if I could use the story. But he was telling me about carrying a cat that showed up at their house far away and the blooming thing came back. And I was sitting here thinking about this. I thought, man, temptation's just like that, isn't it? You can carry it miles away, but it has a way of finding itself, its way back into our life, right? Here's the third thing I'd say to you. Flee from it. Cut it off, cut it out, flee from it, or run would be the third one. In, in the New Testament, David's commitment to removing temptation before his eyes, I think is taken one step further where the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee it, he says. And I, and I think the difference would be this. If you can't remove it, remove yourself. If you can't remove it, Remove yourself. Someone once quipped, when fleeing temptation, don't leave a forwarding address. It's the same sort of thought I was just saying a second ago. And you know, no matter how far I flee, I'm always taking me with me. So there's a sense in which this is, you know, um, impossible to do. But, but, but no, it's not. You, you can flee away. You can, you can get away from temptation. And you need to. Number six, cultivate a healthy rejection of bad influences. In verse 5, I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. I cannot tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. I'm going to skip over verse 6. Verse 7, no one who acts deceitfully will live in my palace. No one who tells lies will remain in my presence. Every morning I will destroy the wicked of the land, eliminating all evildoers from the Lord's city. I think David is speaking from a place where he could go further than you and I can go or should go. I think he's talking about as king, he was going to destroy, uh, eliminate people uh, from the kingdom that were, were bad influences. So uh, you and I, we can't do that. But we can cultivate in our life a rejection of bad influences in our life. And I believe that's what this means is that we would reject people whose influences are going to be detrimental in our life. We're, we would remove them from our lives. Now, if you're tracking with me, maybe you're thinking, but wait a minute, wait a minute, Je Jesus hung out with the sinners? Don't you remember that? The Pharisees used to say, how can you hang out with sinners if you're a godly man? It happened with Simon the Pharisee. It happened when Jesus was with Matthew and all of his buddies. And here's the difference, everyone. Jesus hung out with sinners, but they were not the major influencers in his life. He would go and seek to reach them and, and be involved in their lives, but he... They were not the major influencers in his heart. And I think that's the difference here. Paul would tell the Corinthian church, he would say, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Jesus would say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Remember that? He says, watch out for the, leavens of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they thought that he was talking about bread. And he says, no, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about their influence. Be, be careful from their influence. David says, I'm not going to tolerate the gossip, the liar, the prideful, or the wicked in his life. Um, someone coined this phrase, and it's all over the internet. You can go out and find it. Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. Your friends are going to be the major shapers of your life. Young people, listen to me. All of us old people, you know, <laughs> maybe we've got all the friends we're ever going to get. I don't know. 
But you young people, you're going to be making friends throughout your life, different career moves you're going to have, educational moves, you're going to have new and different friends. And I'm going to tell you something, the friends that you make in your life, they're going to be the shapers of who you become. They're, go they're, going, to, they're going to say who you become as you hang out with them. Hang around gossips, I'm going to tell you something, you're going to become a gossip. You hang around liars and you're going to become a liar. And again, I, I recognize there's exceptions to this. And I recognize you might not become the liar that someone else is or the gossip that someone else is. But if a gossip, a liar, a prideful person is a major influencer in your life, that's you're going to drift and gravitate towards being that kind of person. So, so young people, listen to me. If you hang around a faithless person, you're going to become a faithless person. You say, no, I'm not. I can change them. They're, they'll become like me. And, and yeah, you may, you may end up changing them. But there's a greater chance they're going to change you. Samuel Clemens, y'all know who Samuel Clemens was? A lot of you do. Samuel Clemens was Mark Twain. He was a gifted writer, but did you know this? He had a deep contempt for Christianity. He used to talk about us as the slaughterhouse religion because of our, our commitment to Jesus and his shedding his blood for us. Um, he ridiculed the Bible, but he fell in love with Olivia Langdon. She was uh, from a good Christian home. She was a Christian and they began courting. He downplayed his lack of faith and, and Olivia married him. After their marriage, uh, Mark Twain began to openly mock Christianity again. Before long, Olivia stopped attending church. And uh, Twain and his family suffered many great reversals, including a complete financial collapse, the death of their daughter. And at one point, Twain, attempting to comfort Olivia, his grieving wife, said, Livy, if it comforts you to lean on your faith, do so. And she replied back to Mark, I cannot, I do not have any faith left. She didn't change Mark. Mark changed her. David said, I'm going to cultivate influences in my life. And if there's anything for you young people that I could say, that if you could just hear me, the influencers in your life, they're going to be just that, the major influences. David says, I'm not going to put bad influence in my life. But on the other hand, he, he, in verse 6, he kind of says the opposite. And here's what I'd say to you. If you want to cultivate a life of godliness, cultivate godly friendships. Cultivate faithful relationships. Verse 6. My eyes favor the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me. The one who follows the way of integrity may serve me. In the same way that bad influences destroy you, good influences, they strengthen you. They build you up. They help you become that godly person. David said, I'm going to cultivate faithful friendships. The one who's going to sit in my life, look at it. The faithful of the land, they're the ones who get to sit down with me. They're the ones who are going to be my friends. They're the ones who are going to, they're the ones who are going to impact me. So I thought about this this week. I thought about my faithful friends who have influenced me. Jeff Denlinger whose friendship persuaded me to follow Jesus from my heart. Mark Griffith, whose friendship taught me to share my faith. Larry Holland, whose friendship taught me to be the best pastor and even preacher I could be. Donnie Friendsley, whose friendship influenced me to be real and to be humble and to be on time. 
Dale Robertson, whose friendship influenced me to be gregarious and encouraging to others around me. Just the guys at the at the at Walmart check the checker outs at Walmart. Dale's Dale influenced me to be a kind and gracious and energy pouring in to those kind of people that I come in contact with throughout the day. They influenced me. And then I thought about the influences of so many of you in my family. I've lived 34 years of my life with you. And so many of you have influenced me in ways that, you know, I couldn't even begin to tell you. You have been major influencers in my life. Young people, Cut off the bad influences, but put good influences there. Build friendships with godly men, godly women who are going to pour into your life, not, not cause you to fall. And this applies to all of us, all of us, regardless of what your age is. The influence of a faithful person cannot be underestimated. I think I've told you this story before, but Henry Stanley was an avowed atheist, and he was a reporter, and he went to Africa to write on uh, David Livingston, you know, the missionary to Africa. And he met David, and he hung out with David for four months and uh, to, to get his life so he could go back and write about him. This is, what, uh, this is what Stanley would later write. I went to Africa as prejudiced as the biggest atheist in London. But there came a time, a long time for reflection. I saw this solitary old man there and asked myself, how on earth does he stay here? What is it that inspires him? For months after we met, I found myself wondering at the old man carrying out all that was said in the Bible. Leave all things and follow me. But little by little, my sympathy was aroused, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went about his business. I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. Livingston's life, his influence, led Stanley to follow Jesus. So there you have it. How do I cultivate a godly life? What does David say he's going to do? Well, number one, he's going to take personal responsibility for it. You need to do the same. Cultivate a heart of praise every day. Every day, begin your day or at some time, you're praising God, acknowledging who he is, who he is in real life, who he is, in, who he is really, and who he is to you. Acknowledge that. Cultivate intentionality to be blameless. I mean, a kind of blamelessness, blamelessness begins with a desire to be blameless. I guess I'm saying cultivate that, cultivate that, uh, that desire. Cultivate integrity on the inner man. Cultivate the elimination of temptation. Cultivate healthy rejection of bad influences. And cultivate faithful friendships. And if we cultivate these, I believe we'll reap a harvest of godliness. So as we conclude, though, let me, let me end with a couple of thoughts. Number one, King David fell woefully short of what he was committing to do, right? Hey, I'm going to intentionally check out my ways so that I don't sin. And yet when it came time to go to battle, he stayed home. And when he came time to go to battle, he's walking on the roof of his house and seeing things that he wouldn't have seen. And, and, then, and then doing things and pursuing things he shouldn't have pursued. And probably not having anybody that would be willing to point out, David, that's not right. Except for Nathan. Nathan would eventually do it. But So David fell woefully short of what he wanted to be his king. But I really want to tell you, there was one of David's sons who would not fail. 
who would live this perfectly. And maybe not his immediate son like Solomon, but there would be a grandson who would come and his name would be Jesus. The, the great, 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 whatever grandson of King David. And he would do this perfectly. He was perfect, perfectly responsible, personally responsible and perfectly responsible. He was blameless in how he walked and he was blameless in his heart and he worshiped. And even at a young age, he told his parents, don't you know I should be about my father's business? He was a man of praise. He was tempted like us and yet without sin. He rejected bad influences and surrounded himself with men who loved God. And because of all that, he died and God raised him from the dead. And because of him, God will raise us from the dead too. If we follow him, if we put our faith in him, God will rescue us. Godliness presupposes faith. And so I want to just ask you this. Have you put your faith in Jesus? I mean, godliness, it's like last week, entering into his gates. It all presupposes that I'm trusting in Jesus, that I'm following Jesus, that Jesus is my Lord. So I want to ask you, are you following Jesus? And I want to invite you to follow Jesus today, to, to really to follow him. Earlier, I read you an excerpt from Munger's book, right, about the, about the closet. Let me, let me read the ending. Can I read the ending to you? It's uh, the transfer of the title was this part. This is the end. Then I thought, a thought came to me. I said to myself, I have been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room and no sooner have I cleaned that, then another room is dirty. I begin on the second room and the first room becomes dusty again. I'm so tired and weary of trying to maintain and clean a clean heart and obedient life. I'm just not up to it. So I ventured a question, Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the responsibility of the whole house and operate it for me and with me just as you did that closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? I could see his face light up as he replied, certainly, that is what I came to do. You cannot be victorious, a victorious Christian in your own strength. That's impossible. Let me do it through you and for you. That is the way. But, he added slowly, I'm not the owner of this house. I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property is not mine. I saw it, and in a moment, I dropped to my knees, and I said, Lord, you have been a guest, and I have been the host. From now on, I'm going to be the servant, and you're going to be the owner and the master and Lord. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house, describing its assets, liabilities, location, situation, and condition. I eagerly signed it over to belong to him alone for time and eternity. And here I said, here it is, all that I am and all I have forever. Now you run the house and I'll just remain with you as a servant and a friend. He took my life that day and I gave, and I can give you my word, there's no better way to live the Christian life. He knows how to keep it in shape and deep peace settles down on the soul. May Christ settle down and be at home in your heart as Lord of all. So I wonder this morning for every one of us, is, is Jesus, is he the guest and we're the host? I mean, there's a sense in which I believe that we must invite Jesus. Uh, we must invite him in. I, I believe that. Revelation chapter 3, you know, Jesus saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Of course, he's speaking to Christians there. 
He's speaking to Christians, but there's still the sense in which they have an obligation to open the door to Jesus. I think that's true for all of us. You have an obligation to open the door. But I wonder this morning, would you be willing to give him everything and follow him with all of your heart, with all of your being? That's the question. That's the question before us. So would you bow your head? I'd like you to answer that question. I have us bow our heads because it's supposed to be just between you and God. And it is. Would you be like Robert Munger just talked about at the end of his little story there and say, Lord, come, take over. Take, take my life, Lord. Everything about it, let it be yours. Would you invite Jesus to take the title of your life? Follow him with all your being. Now, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to follow after Jesus like that, then it's on you. Follow him. Give him, give him control. Give him, give him the title. Take personal responsibility to serve him and love him. And he'll fill you with his spirit. And, and he'll do all the things that Robert Munger visualized in his metaphor. He'll give you peace and take your life and lead you. trying to figure out how to bring this plane into a landing, so to speak. So here's what I want to ask you to do. If today is a day in which you're willing to, to surrender all to the Lord, to, to follow after him. Do we have that video, guys? Can we, can we show that YouTube video? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stop the live stream, and we're going to show something. So let me, let me pray for us, okay? God, just thank you for this word from David as he just talked about cultivating godliness in his own life and cultivating his life as a king, as, as the new head of the kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for just how it prize our lives to cultivate godliness as well. Lord, we confess that we've not been necessarily doing a good job of that, but we want to. So fill us with your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.